Chris mentioned, and it's something I'm really, uh, really excited about. I shared with Catherine this morning um, something we, we ta- tell Bradley often. Uh, Bradley, our youngest son, uh, is, is adopted, and we tell Bradley that when, when he was adopted, it's not just that he now belongs to us. Adoption means that we now belong to him. And that's really what the picture of baptism is all about. Uh, baptism, at its fundamental core, is the statement that the one belongs to the many. And communion is the statement that the many are one. And so as we think about baptism and when people get baptized, it is not just the statement that that person belongs to us, though it is, it is also the statement that we belong to them. And that comes with a a great level of accountability and responsibility, and there are many implications of that. And so as we have seen, we're commanded, and one of the things we do regularly here is we preach the gospel, we sing the gospel, we Uh, We share the gospel, we pray the gospel, but we also see the gospel. And God has given us these two means through baptism and communion to see the gospel. That when by faith we become part of his death and burial and resurrection, we not only are forgiven and cleansed of our sin, but we are placed into the body of Christ and, and we belong to one another. And then as we partake of the elements here together, we are reminded that we are one in Christ. And so uh, after today's message, we will then move pretty much directly into communion, having been prepared now to understand them both. Let me read to you First uh, John chapter 1, verses, uh, starting in verse 5 and going through 2-2, and then we'll pray. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be a church marked by repentance, that individually our lives would be uh, would display willing repentance and confession of sin and, and admission when we do wrong and a seeking of forgiveness from you and from one another. But Lord, we pray that corporately we would be marked by repentance as well, that when we, when we do things wrong or get things wrong as a whole church, that we would confess those sins to you as well and seek to repent of them and to change and to do different. Lord, as we pray for churches today, we want to pray for uh, churches this morning all over the eastern seaboard that are affected by Hurricane Ida. And Lord, we know that some of them this morning may have been scrambling to figure out what to do without a building or maybe a building that had been destroyed or damaged. Or maybe they're, maybe they're just seeking, Lord, to care for their own community. 
But Lord, may, may whatever is going on there serve as a reminder to them and to us that the church is not, uh, it is, it is not a building. It is not an organization. It's not even any one of us. That the church is your people gathered together for worship. That the church is a gathering of your people, Lord. And may we always remember what the church is. Lord, help those churches to not only love and care for the, their communities, but to take the gospel into them as well. Lord, we want to pray this morning for uh, the Christian Aid Center and as we partner with them in ministry. Lord, we thank you for their praises of just uh, the ability to do the work that they do, the facilities they have that help them to meet the needs of people in our community and for the women's uh, and children's facility that they now have and are able to reach a, a whole different uh, demographic of people in this community. We thank you that they have the means and the facilities to do the work that they do, but we pray with them, Lord, that you would provide for them that you would provide for their, uh, the needs that they have monetarily to do the work that they do. Lord, we pray that you would uh, give soft hearts to the people that they care for, that, that lives would just not be put together or cleaned up, but that they would be saved, Lord, that the gospel would fall upon soft hearts and that people would hear of what you have done for us and believe and, and receive your forgiveness and salvation, Lord. We pray for rest for the staff as well as they balance uh, work and service at the Christian Aid Center, Lord. We pray that you would just give them a great uh, ability to trust you and to know that it is you who is at work in people's hearts and lives and so that they can uh, give the time that, that is, is designated for their work to work, but then also to family and to rest and to other things that you command us to do, Lord. But we want to pray also for Sandy and Sue Nafziger as they're uh, supposed to be heading to Germany and as Germany is closing down uh, borders and not letting people in, and uh, they're, they're, supposed, they're scheduled to go there for this ministry that you've called them to. Lord, we just pray that supernaturally you would allow them to get in, that you would pave the way for them, and that they would just uh, be able to get there and do the ministry uh, uh, that they're called to, Lord, that, uh, that they would be able to share the gospel there, and that you would save people and grow your church as a result. Lord, give us great understanding into your word today, and a great willingness to obey it and to to do what it says, Lord. Not, we would not just have clear minds to understand it, but that we would have soft hearts and willingness to obey your word as well. And so we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. August 12th of 1912 uh, was not an ordinary day. Uh, it was not a day, though, that, was, that also ended up being remembered for the excitement around that day. August 12th, 1912, was the day that the Titanic left England and departed for the U.S. Aboard the Titanic were 1,312 passengers and 914 crew members for a total of 2,226 souls on board. On August 14th, just two days later, at 9.40 a.m., the first iceberg warning was sent to the Titanic. Throughout the remainder of that day, five more warnings would be sent to the Titanic that there were icebergs in the water in the area that they were uh, steaming ahead. All of these messages went ignored. And they all went ignored for the purpose of sending messages out for the passengers. Six warnings throughout the day, and all of them ignored. Most of us know the rest of that story. That on August 14th, uh, same day where they received the first 
warning at 9.40 in the morning. Uh, at 11.40 at night, the Titanic struck an iceberg. At 12.45 in the morning on August 15th, just one hour and five minutes after the strike, the first lifeboat was loaded and lowered into the water. Most of us know the rest of the story, that the ship began to take on water, that the water overflowed the bulkheads in uh, the boat, and that eventually it broke in half and sunk. Of the 2,226 souls on board, only 753 were saved. Friends and family quickly began to gather outside of the White Star Shipping Line's office in New York, wondering what happened to their family and friends and loved ones. And and the White Star Shipping Lines uh, began posting papers outside of the office door in New York City with the names of the people who were on board the boat as they began to get information of them. And next to each name was printed one of two words, either Next to their name was printed the word saved or was printed the word lost. At that point in time, all that mattered to people was knowing where their loved ones were. Were they saved or were they lost? The reality is that the world we live in is a sinking ship. It has struck the iceberg of sin. We are taking on water. And our our destiny is not good. And the only thing that matters before God is what is printed next to our name, either saved or lost. We are either in the lifeboat who is Jesus Christ and we are saved or we are trying to save ourselves, trying to keep ourselves afloat. And the only end to that is is lost. Where do you stand? What is next to your name in terms of eternity? Saved or lost? Now, I can think of only two great tragedies in regards to this question. And and the first is by far the greater tragedy. But the first great tragedy I can think of is for you to believe that you are saved when you are not. I mean, imagine standing before Christ after your death and saying, but, but Lord, Lord, did I not go to church and serve in children's ministry? And was I not baptized? Did I not do good things? And have him say, depart from me, for I never knew you, you who practiced lawlessness. There is a great tragedy in thinking that you are saved when, in fact, you are not. The other great tragedy would be to think you're not saved when you really are. To to be genuinely saved by Christ and to spend your life wondering fearfully, am I in the lifeboat or am I not? But God wants us to know. And that's why we've been given the book of 1 John. 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants us not to wonder, 
not to think wishfully or to, to go about our life going, man, I, I hope I'm saved, but I'm not really sure. He wants us to know. And it really matters. It matters whether you know or not. Listen to Adrian Rogers. Adrian Rogers said, I have found that those who have a solid assurance of their salvation are the happiest and healthiest Christians. The reason for this is simple. When we know the future is secure, we can concentrate on the present. When you're in the lifeboat, there's security there. You can get about the work that needs to be done. But when you're unsure, when you're not certain whether you're going to be saved or not, your business is merely survival. And John is telling us, I want you to know. I want you to know that you've been saved by Christ. I want you to know that you've been saved from the sinking ship of this world that has struck the iceberg of sin and is certainly going down. I want you to know so that you can get about the business of moving your boat around, your lifeboat around, and calling other people to get in. Those who were in the lifeboats, at least some of them, they went to others who were in the water and they they said, get in the boat with us. I think the Christians who are most earthly good, are the ones who are most heavenly minded, who are most secure in their salvation, who are most certain of their salvation in Jesus Christ. Because I'm not busy worrying and working and trying to obtain my own salvation and security. I just simply trust that Jesus has done it. I'm certain in my salvation, and I can get about being spiritual good to others and calling others to get in the boat to be saved by Christ, whose life was made a shipwreck of so that we might get into the lifeboat of his life when we had made shipwreck of our lives. And so John has given us this book, and in it there are nine vital signs of faith, nine vital signs of spiritual life. It's a term I borrowed from Steve Lawson, and and I love it, and so we're going with it. But Uh, Last week, Pastor Chris shared with us the first one, and he did a great job. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, we see that the first vital sign is communion with Christ and communion with the Father, which necessitates, as we see here in John 1, communion with one another. And if you have not heard that sermon, I would highly commend you. Get on YouTube, get on the church's website, and listen to it, because he did such a great job with it. But I love the, the picture he painted for us of AstroTurf that looks oftentimes like the real thing, but is fake and has no life in it. And so often, we substitute real fellowship, real partnership in the gospel, real fellowship with God and with one another for things that look like they have life, but really don't have much life in them at all. And the reality is that communion with Christ and communion with the Father and communion with one another is not always the easiest thing. In fact, I just got back from Tucson where people love to fill their backyards with astroturf. It looks like the real thing. It requires no water. It requires no fertilizer. It requires no mowing. But there's no life there. And we can't substitute Yeah, going to church, being part of the body of Christ, meaningfully engaging in one another's lives, being vulnerable with one another, communion with Christ and one another is never the easiest thing. There's weeds to be pulled. There's maintenance to be done. There's fertilizer to be laid. And sometimes it's stinky. But there's life there. It's the real thing. 
It's what God has given us for life. And so I, if you have not listened to last week's sermon, you should. It's excellent. And as soon as I listened to it, I think on Tuesday, I texted Chris and I was like, man, well done. I was super grateful for it. But today we see the second vital sign. And the second vital sign is built upon the first. Now, if anybody in here knows CPR, you, you know that when, when somebody uh, uh, is having a problem, you check for vital signs. You check for signs of life. And, and not all, all of them mean the same thing. The first thing you do if somebody's like on the floor and you think they might need help is you check to see if they're breathing. Because if they're breathing, their heart is beating. Guaranteed. You don't have to check their pulse at that point. Because if your heart's not beating, you're not breathing. But if they're not breathing, then you check their pulse. Because their heart might be beating while they're not breathing. So an example would be, if I have a heart attack and my heart stops beating, I'm not going to breathe. But i got to check both to know. But if I'm choking on something, my heart might still be beating, but I can't breathe. And what's needed in those circumstances is a little different. Well, in some ways, these first two vital signs are kind of like that. If you don't have communion with Christ, if you don't have fellowship with the Father through Jesus, you don't have spiritual life. Game over. Your heart is not beating. There's a reason why this is the first one presented to us. It is the seminal one. It is the foundational vital sign. It is the heartbeat of our spiritual lives that we are in a real and genuine relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. And nothing else matters if you don't have that. That is the heartbeat of our spiritual life. But I believe that as we look at this second vital sign, which today is confession of sin, this is a little bit like breathing. You can have genuine spiritual life with God through Jesus Christ while choking on sin. But guess what? When we choke in real life and our heart is still beating, you can't stay in that state very long. And the same is true spiritually. I might have genuine, uh, a genuine relationship with God. I might be genuinely saved. But I cannot choke on sin for long and just stay in that condition. Now, I don't believe, I don't think Scripture teaches that we can lose our salvation, but both 1 John and 1 Corinthians tell us that God put people to death for their sin. Not as an act of discipline. Christ has been punished for us, but as an act of grace. You can't choke on sin long and live in this life. It's an incredibly dangerous place to be. Sin is not to be trifled with. And so last week, you were asked to, to take your spiritual pulse. Is your heart beating? Do you have real fellowship with the Father through Christ? And by extension, one another. That's built in. Those go hand in hand, by the way. In the entirety of the New Testament, the, the New Testament authors always indicate for us that communion with the Father necessitates communion with the church. They, they cannot be separated. They go together. And so we were asked to check that pulse 
last week. And this week, I'm going to ask you to see if you had a pulse last week, if this week, if you're breathing or if you're choking on sin. And so our vital sign today is confession of sin. And rather than giving you a series of points, I just want to briefly work through these verses uh, one by one. So start with me in verse 5. John starts out by saying, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now this is a reference to sin, right? And this is a great analogy for righteousness and for sin. Because, you know, we oftentimes think, well, what is sin? Who created sin? If God is perfect and holy, who created sin? Well, it's kind of a broken question. What is darkness? Is darkness a thing? No, it's the absence of a thing. Darkness is the absence of light. And sin is the absence of righteousness. And John starts out by telling us that in God, there is no darkness. There is no absence of righteousness. This is what it means that God is holy. And, and, and it is probably, holiness is probably his first attribute. And what I mean by first is it is the defining attribute of all of his attributes. In God's grace, he is holy. In his sovereignty, he is holy. In his righteousness, he is holy. In his wrath, he is holy. In his justice, he is holy. In his mercy, he is holy. In his kindness, he is holy. In all that he does, from judgment and wrath to mercy and grace, there is no sin in God. And this is the fundamental message that we have heard, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Verse 6, but if we say we have fellowship with him, that's verses 1 through 4, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, if we say we have spiritual life while we're choking on sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. The reality is that sin is not something that is to be present in the lives of Christians. If you claim that you are in fellowship with God, but engaged in a life of willful sin, You're lying to yourself. In some way or another, you're lying to yourself. And verse 7 shows us why. But if, this is in contrast, but if we walk in the light, that is if we walk in the same way and place and direction as God, if we're going where God is going because he is the light, we have fellowship with one another. There's that assumption I was talking about. To have fellowship with God is to have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus is, his son cleanses us from all sins. Notice that this is not just a forgiveness of sins. John doesn't say that that the blood of Jesus forgives us of all sins. He says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. Jesus is not just in the business of forgiving our sins in the past. He's in the business of removing sin from us in the future and in the present as well. This cleansing from sin is not just a past reality, it is a present reality. Jesus has cleansed us, is cleansing us from sin. Does this mean that Christians never sin? There's one popular preacher on TV, a a lady who claims, and she's written a lot of books and people buy them up by the dozens, who claims that she is no longer sinful. She is perfect and completely free from sin. 
Has she found the secret of 1 John? Absolutely not, because John gives us the great contrast to what he's already saying here, that Christians can't be comfortable with sin. But verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So if you say, hey, I have fellowship with God. In fact, okay, I'll give an example. This was a real thing I read recently, within the last few months. I read a, I read a, a, a blog from a pastor who said, you know, there's these TV shows out there that I tell my congregation not to watch. But I watch them because I'm spiritually mature enough. This is the first lie that John is talking about. That if I say I have fellowship with the Father, but I'm comfortable with sin, I'm lying to myself. But the other side of that coin is that if I say I have no sin, that I'm not sinful, that I'm perfect and free from sin, I'm also deceiving myself. Uh, Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This seems awful duplicitous, right? I mean, which is it? Is it that we are to have no sin or that we are to have sin? Well, yes and no. Let me see if I can show you why this is not duplicitous. Number one, Christians are never to be comfortable with sin. We're never to be comfortable with sin. The reality is, and I'll say this twice to let it sink in, Jesus had to die for our sin. Let that sink in for a minute. The the eternal, perfect Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth, had to die for our sin. Why would we be comfortable with or entertain ourselves with that for which Christ died? As though his death was not a big deal. Christians are not to be comfortable with that which put Jesus on the cross. And at the same time, Christians are not yet free of sin. Jesus has forgiven us and is redeeming us, but we're not perfect yet. We will be someday. And then number three, and this is where verse nine comes in, Christians are not those who are comfortable with sin. Christians are also not those who are clear from sin. Christians are those who confess their sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sin or sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christians aren't comfortable with sin. Christians aren't clear of sin. Christians confess their sin. What does it mean, though, to confess our sin? Does it mean that I need to have somebody in the church who I tell all of my sins to? Or that I get into a small little box and tell a guy with a funny collar all that I've done wrong? Or that God only forgives me of the sins that I I admit to him that I did and ask his forgiveness of? I don't think any of these are what what confession means. The word confession in Greek just means to say the same thing as means to say the same thing as. It means we say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. When God says that's wrong, we say it's wrong. The fundamental nature of confession, this is written at the top of my confession page in my prayer journal, is I am a sinner in need of a Savior. That's what confession is. That I'm a sinner. 
that, that there is sin in my, present in my life, that I am in need of a Savior to cleanse me from that sin. But it also means we don't try to justify our sin. Oh, and if you're anything like me, you're really, really good at this. I'm really good at justifying my own sin. Whether that's in my own mind or heart with sin nobody knows about, or whether it's when somebody comes to me and says, hey, that was wrong. For some reason, it is the hardest, the hardest place to confess my sin is with my wife. When she's the one who comes to me and says, you're sinning here, buddy. I'm like, let's argue about that. I get my inner lawyer on and I'm like, oh, I can argue. I can win this case. But you know what? It's not the right way to go. Because I have two options in that moment. I can try and justify my sin before you, before my wife, before God, or I can let Christ justify my sin. I can let his righteousness and death cover my sin. Oh, he's so much better lawyer than I ever am. His ability to, to cover my sin is far better than, than mine is. And so we are to be those who confess our sin. When somebody comes to you and says, you know, you, you did this and you shouldn't have, do you try and put the best spin on it? Well, I didn't mean it that way. Well, my intentions were good. Do you try and justify your actions somehow? Or can you just admit it and, and, and say, you know what, I, I, that is, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Knowing that that, that sin has already been justified by Christ. If you have trusted Christ, if you've gotten into the lifeboat, Confession just means we agree with sin. And as those who are to be confessors of sin, we must never, ever, ever, in our own lives individually, with one another, and as a church, tolerate sin. Sin is destructive. It is harmful. It always hurts people. It always damages relationships. We should never tolerate it. But how we go about that is of the utmost importance. What does it mean that we don't tolerate sin? Does it mean that we're just harsh with each other and we're, we demand people, I mean, we're just like, oh, that's not right. I'm cutting you off. Get out. I don't think that's at all what Scripture has in mind for us. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that is sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. As a church, we are to never be tolerable towards sin. But we are to deal with sin in the church and with each other, if I'm understanding Galatians 6, 1 and 2 correctly, gently, helpfully, and cautiously. We gently restore people for their good. That's the helpful part. We, ha- we don't just go to people and say, hey, I know you're struggling with sin, you got to fix it. Or maybe that's not very gentle. Maybe it's, you know, I-, I know that you're having a hard time here. You need to correct that in your life. Good luck. That might be gentle, but it's not helpful. Helpful says, look, I, I see this as a struggle for you, and I'm here to help you bear that burden. I'm here to fulfill the law of Christ by bearing that burden with you but I'm going to do it cautiously so that I don't fall into the same sin, into the same temptation. That's, 
That's the way we're supposed to deal with sin. This is a big call on our lives because it means when you go correct somebody else for their sin, it can't be for your good. It's got to be for theirs. If, if I come to you to correct your sin and I say, oh man, I just really have to get this off my chest, you can just know right then and there, I'm there for my good, not yours. H- how do you correct people? Do you go to them as one who has sinned and needs correction and you're there to be the enforcer? Or do you approach them as one who as a fellow believer in Jesus Christ that their sin has already been covered by the righteousness of Christ. It's already been dealt with. Is that the way you approach people? I think part of the reason churches revolt a little bit so often when we take sin seriously is because oftentimes churches that take sin seriously also do so harshly. We can be serious about sin. We can even enact church discipline, according to Matthew 18, while being gentle, helpful, and cautious. That's the nature of the way that we're to correct sin. And so that's how we correct sin in one another. But when somebody comes to correct us, whether they're gentle or helpful or self-serving, is completely doesn't matter because I have the responsibility before you and before God to, to confess my sin. And then verse 10 just kind of reiterates all of that. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The reality is, as a church and as individual believers, we should be more afraid of the lack of confession in our life than the presence of it. I think so often we think, man, you know, we know the church is firing on all eight cylinders when when people aren't sinning against each other and there's no need for confession of sin. It's just not true. We're always going to bring present, sin into the presence of, I mean, you've probably heard before somebody tell you, you know, hey, if you ever find a church that seems perfect, leave because you'll just mess it up. Like, that's totally true. We all bring sin into the equation. It's, it's going to be present. What's going to mark us as a healthy church is not the lack of confession, but the presence of it. When we can confess to one another that we've sinned against one another, when we can confess to God that corporately maybe we've done something wrong. This isn't just an individual thing. This could be a corporate thing. Maybe we need corporate confession that says, Lord, we've been going about things this way and we need your forgiveness. We've been going about things in the church that take the corporate nature of the church lightly. We confess that to you, Lord. Forgive us for taking so lightly that which was purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Corporate confession and personal confession are indications of health in a church. The lack of it is is dangerous, is what we should really be afraid of. The reality is that, that we're all sinners, and we all need to confess to one another and to the Father the sin that is present in our lives. But the question now is, what happens when we do? And that's where chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 come into play. And look at this. This is beautiful and wonderful. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, there's this first objective. I want you to not sin. And I'm writing these things to you so that you might grow in grace, that you might grow in holiness, so that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, which 
you know, uh, is probably more akin to, but when anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. This, this word advocate means somebody who is called alongside. When you do sin, or maybe when someone else sins against you, and they have to go to the Father or go to you to confess their sin, they have somebody who goes along with them. And who is it who goes along with us? It is Jesus. That's his name. It is Jesus Christ. That's his title, Messiah, Savior, Jesus, the Savior, the righteous. So when I go before God and I say, Lord, I have sinned against you, right next to me is Jesus who says, my righteousness covers that. It doesn't matter how much I have to confess of. It doesn't matter how filled with sin my past is. The righteousness of Christ covers that sin. When I come to you and I say, you know what, I've sinned against you. I can come to you boldly. If I can go before the Father boldly because Christ's righteousness covers my sin, oh, how much easier should it be to go before you and confess my sin knowing that Christ's righteousness has covered it. But maybe, the, maybe we need to see things from the other side. When somebody comes to you and they have sinned against you, what's in your heart? Oh, they've sinned against me and I want justice. Or here comes so-and-so with Jesus Christ, the righteous, their advocate, whose righteousness covers their sin. Oh, and if the righteousness of Christ can cover my sin before the Father, then the righteousness of Christ can certainly cover your sin before me or my sin before you. We don't seek to go alone. It's not our righteousness. It's not our perfection. This is why obedience never earns us salvation. Obedience is just living into what Christ has already earned for us. We deserve to die. He died in our place. He gets treated as though he's been unrighteous, even though he never sinned, so that I can get treated according to his righteousness, though I am a sinner. And then verse 2 tells us he is the propitiation for our sins. This is a big word that we oftentimes don't know the meaning of. Propitiation, just the word, it, to make propitious means to make favorable. When it says that he is the propitiation for our sins, it, what John is saying here is that Jesus Christ, the righteous, is the one who makes God favorable towards us despite our sin. And not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, this is not a statement of universal salvation. This is a statement that Jesus is the only Savior to everybody, no matter what tribe or nation or tongue or language or ethnicity or skin color or hair color or anything else. There is only one Savior for anyone who would be saved, and it is Jesus Christ, the righteous. But when they are saved, when they trust in his death and resurrection and life as the covering for their sins and go to him to receive forgiveness... Their sins are covered. Their sins, God is now propitious towards them. He has been made favorable towards them. And I think when John says, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world, this means it's not just my sin that God has, uh, that, that Jesus has made God favorable, favorable towards me. It's yours too. And this demands that that's how I interact with you. That if you're a believer, we interact as those whose sins have been covered by Jesus Christ. Do sins deserve punishment? Absolutely. 
Is God harsh in that punishment because they deserve it? Absolutely. But guess what? Jesus took the full measure of God's wrath. And so there's none left. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, there's none left. And so we shouldn't pick up where the cross left off. We don't tolerate sin because Jesus had to die for it. Oh, but we deal with one another in gentleness and in helpfulness. We bear one another's burdens cautiously. We're all sinners being reformed by God, but we're all accepted by God because of the righteousness of Christ if we have placed our faith in him. So my question before you today is take your pulse. Do you have true fellowship with Christ and the Father and the church? And if the answer to that is yes, the question is, are you breathing? Are you confessing your sins to others and to God, or or are you choking on your sin? My experience as a pastor, I don't want to make this as an absolute law because my experience is very narrow, but every person who's ever come into my office and said, I'm really struggling with knowing whether or not I'm saved, is also struggling with willful sin, sin that they know is wrong. And they're like, man, I I know this is wrong. I keep doing it. I'm struggling to have victory. I don't know if I'm saved. Now, the first thing I do in that moment is I reassure them because I'm pretty sure unsaved people don't sit around talking about the sins they're struggling to have victory over. The very fact that we're struggling with that sin is an indication of life, that we're choking on something. But but we can't be comfortable with sin. Let me see if I can help clarify this real quickly just by, uh, by understanding what this looks like maybe inside of us. What confession looks like What real confession looks like for a believer is maybe you've sinned for the thousandth time in something that you're trying to have victory over, and you go, oh, man, that is wrong, and I shouldn't have done that, and it's it's an offense to, to the God who saved me by the blood of his son, and you confess it to God. Lord, I've fallen again. Please forgive me, or thank you for forgiving me. That's what goes on in the heart of a believer. What you should be scared of is this kind of thinking. Well, I know that sin, but Jesus already paid for that. I can do it anyways. That's, that's not how believers think. The thought process is, I'm tempted. I know that sin, but I can't do that for which Christ died. And even sometimes then, we still fall and fail and pick up. But repentance, not perfection, is the mark of believers. And we never use grace as license, as permission to sin willfully. Yes, we sin. Yes, we struggle with the same sins over and over and over. But we should never sit around and go, yeah, you know, I know that's wrong, but, but I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable with it. It's been forgiven. That's the kind of willful sin that John is saying should never be present in our lives. And if we say we have fellowship with the Father and that kind of comfort with sin, we might be choking on our own sinfulness. Or maybe we just don't have any spiritual life at all. But believers are not those who are free from sin. They are those who are in the process of confessing their sin. They are being reformed. They are being uh, uh, turned into the image of Christ. We, we confess and repent and turn away from our sin. Are you seeing progressively less and less sin in your life? 
Do you have communion and relationship and fellowship with God through Christ and with his church? If you can say yes, then those are signs of life. But if you cannot, if you're saying, man, maybe my life is more marked by comfort with sin than by confession of it, then I would would beg you today to go to God to confess your sinfulness to him and your need for a savior and, and to understand that Christ has died to pay the penalty for our sin, for your sin, and that through faith and trust in him, we can be saved. May the righteousness of Christ cover your sin and may you understand that you and every other believer has an advocate before the Father and before each other, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Lord, we thank you that we have an advocate for us in Christ. That he has not only paid the penalty of sin, but his righteousness gets accounted to us. It covers all of our sin. It pays the debt that we owe you. Lord, may we never be comfortable with sin, but in the knowledge of the fact that it is present in our lives until we die and go to be with you or until you return and take us home, that we need to be constantly in the process of confessing our sin, both individually and to one another when we, can, when we sin against one another, but also corporately as well. May we be a church that is marked by confession and repentance and sees those as signs of spiritual health, not of unhealth. May we be afraid of the day where there is no confession in our lives, at least this side of heaven. May we take sin seriously, but may we do so with gentleness and helpfulness and caution. And Lord, as we move now to partaking of this uh, meal together, may we be reminded not only of what Christ has done for us, but of the unity that he has provided for us, that we belong to you and to one another, that as baptized believers, we are each a part of the, the body, and that as those who take communion together, we are one body. And may you do great things in and through us as we see the gospel in these ways. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If those who would come forward to serve the elements would do so now, we will sing while we pass out uh, the elements Uh, this morning. Hold them once you get them and we will partake of them together. Uh, Note that there are two cups stacked together. Be sure to take them both. One has bread and one has the juice in it. And then hold on to those. We'll partake of them together. Thank you.
It's really easy for me to find the chapter in 1 Corinthians where Paul gives us instruction on communion because there's grape juice on that page of my Bible, which, you know, that's chapters 10 and 11, and they're on the same page here in my Bible, front and back. And at first, that bothered me. You know, I'm pretty protective of my Bible. I try and keep them in good shape. They wear out fast enough already. And so... Um, so I was kind of frustrated at that at first. And over time, it's grown on me. Uh, and, and it's grown on me because of what it represents. It represents regular participation in the body of Christ. It represents regular participation in the body of Christ around the Lord's table and in his word. And as we commune together, we commune also with Christ, who is actually in our presence. Not yet, not in the same way he will be someday, but who is very and really present 